Well, that was more fun than it even looked like. <laughs> it was a delight. A part of it is uh, the willingness of brothers to gather together under the authority of the living spirit and to lay down their lives for one another. A part of it is just being around this community church, Harvest Heritage, excuse me, I don't know where I am, Heritage Community Church. Uh, every time I am with you all in all the different settings down through the years from your birth date on through, uh, I walk away with more than I come away, that I brought to the table. And I thank you for doing that as evidence of your love for God and one another. And uh, thank you for who you are as a, a light, not just in this community, but in so many places around the world. As uh, Brian alluded to, the uh, uh, retreat had a theme of fearlessness, and of all places, uh, we jump-started from Zephaniah. Now, you don't have to spend the next 10 minutes looking for Zephaniah. Uh, we're going to actually jump over to the New Testament in just a minute, but let me give you a little bit of a recap from the weekend, because we heard an awful lot from God through the prophet Zephaniah about living fearlessly in a fearful world, or living with uncommon sense in a senseless world. And we saw, like in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3, that there was an open invitation from God Himself in every circumstance of life to seek me. Seek me, He says. And you might just find righteousness, humility, and yourself hidden in me. So the invitation to all of us is to be continuously seeking the seeker who is seeking us. He is to be our consciousness. He is the one that we set our minds upon. And as we're recognizing in every facet of our lives right now the meaningful interventions of God, we can also embrace those powerful and meaningful and merciful invitations to step into His reality in the dailiness of our lives. In chapter 2, verse 15 of Zephaniah, Paul, uh, the Zephaniah says, or God says through Zephaniah, I've got something against people who say in their own hearts, I am. That's God's name, isn't it? But when people say, I am, and there is no God besides me... We heard a merciful invitation behind that meaningful intervention to get our little I am immersed in God's great I am. And we learned to say in many different ways, I am what the great I am says I am. And when we're immersing our identity and our security and our significance in the great I am, we are tapping to an unfluctuating source, which is nothing like the culture in which we live where everything is in flux. We read also in the third chapter of Zephaniah, the 15th verse, that seek me, tap into my unfluctuating source, and you will fear evil or disaster no more. There's the open door into fearlessness. 
And we've learned God is always giving us an open invitation to recognize and own and acknowledge out in the light every one of our fears and hop on those fears as they are an escort into God and ride them into His perfect love, remaining in the presence of the perfect love of God until He does what He said He would do in 1 John 4.18. The perfect love of God is the only source able to cast out our fears to keep the fear from conditioning and shaping and naming who we are. Well, why would we seek Him? Why would we do those things? He made it clear, if you don't, in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 8, you are constantly going to be leaving your home in me and making one trip after another out to the far country. And you will purchase with your own human currency and trying hard and personal effort to clothe yourselves in garments that didn't come from me. When you're afraid, you'll pick up tactics, you'll pick up weapons, you'll pick up ideologies, you'll pick up strategies and plans to make your life work. But the problem is this, these foreign garments are not designed by our Heavenly Father to ever suit or fit His children. Rather than continually going to a closet of death, grave clothes as it were, He has a custom-made closet of life, grace clothes for us to wear in whatever fearful circumstance we might find ourselves in. He also said, if you don't continuously seek me, you will become like the children of Israel in Judah during Josiah's reign where Zephaniah came in to prophesy. He said, you will become stagnant in spirit. You will become so crusty, as it were, in heart that your spiritual senses will be thickened. They will become dulled. And no matter how often you go to church or practice some religious uh, devotional or ritual, you are going to live in such a way that body and soul dominate spirit. You will live every single day as though appearances are greater than what God says in His eternal reality. Ultimately, over in chapter 2, verse 15, He said this to them, You'll try to become your own saviors. You'll try to become self-sufficient, self-determined, self-glorifying, and you'll turn into self-deceived little I am's who think you are charting the course of life, who think you can take care of yourself. And what that problem is, and final one here from Zephaniah in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, it's doomed to fail. In whatever you trust apart from me, it is doomed to fail. And this is one of the most powerful and liberating passages in the Old Testament. God said, because I am starving all the gods of this earth. Does that explain an awful lot of what's going on in our culture right now? We keep bowing at an altar that is not God, feeding on sources that are not God, drinking from wells that are not God. And we wonder why there's so much hunger, there's so much thirst, there's so much emptiness, there's so much meaninglessness, there's so much angst and chaos and confusion in our world today. And the number one false God that would be starved in those circumstances are ourselves. Because when we idolize our own thoughts and feelings, when we set our thinkers and feelers on the supreme court of our lives and invite them to tell us what to do next, 
It's amazing to me that people always end up being shocked that life doesn't work. Because one of the main takeaways from Zephaniah for us brothers together this weekend is that God has made life so that self-absorbed people can't make it work. And that is not the rageful, vengeful wrath of God. That is the loving wrath of a good, good, good God. A jealous lover who will never allow anything but himself to liberate us, to set us free, to fill us up on what he meant us to live by from the beginning of the universe. And so here we are in a world filled with hunger and fear and emptiness and meaninglessness. But it's meaningful. This is a part of God's love. He means it. The emptiness is meaningful. It's a meaningful hunger. It's a meaningful thirst. It's even a meaningful meaninglessness. What do you mean? What I mean is this. All of these reactions to everything that seems to be coming apart at the seams and our reactions to those things, those are the sound that God's voice is making to us. That fear is the sound of God's voice saying, come get lost in my love that casts out all of those fears. That anxiety that we feel because we're way too heavily invested in things that are here today and gone tomorrow is the sound that God's voice is making saying, come draw from my unfluctuating source. I am the same today, yesterday, and forever. It's a meaningful angst. Because behind that is a merciful invitation from God. I want you to come and listen to me. Seek me. I want you to find the reward of those who seek Him, which is the gift of God Himself. Zephaniah, whose name means he who is hidden in God, says in chapter 2, verse 3, well, then if you will seek this God and lay down these false idols, he says this, Perhaps you will be hidden in God. Now, that sounds like a pretty fearless place to me. How about you? <laughs> hidden in God. The fulfillment is in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, where Paul said, Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, protected inside and out, nothing getting to us without the passing through that fine screen of the perfect love of God. Meaningful interventions, meaningful interruptions, meaningful setbacks, so that we might learn to seek the Lord in those moments and get what He has for us to receive. Now, Zephaniah, when he was speaking about the spirit of humility and the spirit of purity and the spirit of fearlessness that are the birthright of God's children, we know he was speaking of the coming Messiah. And we know he was speaking about the Holy Spirit of Christ and the Father taking up residence in human spirits. We understand that to walk fearlessly in a fearful world is to learn to walk by the Spirit of God. That's why there are so many references in the New Testament to being led by the Spirit, to walking in the Spirit, to listening to the Spirit, or where we're going today, to be filled with the Spirit. 
He is a fearless spirit. He is the source of all fearlessness for the children of God in this world. Paul had to remind Timothy, who had a bent toward fear because of his circumstances or his own sense of inadequacy, whatever it may have been, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That has a totally different source altogether. He has given us a spirit of love, a spirit of strength, and the spirit of a sound mind. Listen, when you and I have the spirit of Christ joined to our human spirits, we have the spirit of love who casts out all fear. We have the spirit of strength that allows the sons and daughters of God to say, greater is he who is in me than anything that is out here in the world. We have the spirit of a sound mind, the very mind of Christ, an intelligence that's fueled by love so that no matter what kind of circumstance we find ourselves in, He will always, always, always lead us to a fearless, holy, loving option. When the Spirit of Christ takes up residence in us, we are not without choices. So if we want to live fearlessly, if we do not want to quench the Spirit or grieve the Spirit, living by this fearless Spirit, we're going to need to be filled by the Holy Spirit. So if you do have a Bible today, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. We won't take the time to read all of those verses in the New Testament that talk about this same idea, but Paul puts it together rather succinctly in these six or seven verses. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, we find these words, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise redeeming or making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When someone comes for counseling, I just don't know the will of God. I don't know what to do. This is one of the first places I always take them. Well, let's just go to an obvious source that tells us what the will of the Lord is. So maybe we better start here before we even start talking about the issues. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or debauchery or degradation, whatever your translation says, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Why would we be filled with the Spirit of Christ? Because His is a fearless way. His is a fearless truth. His is a fearless life. There wasn't anything about the life of Jesus Christ, the man on this planet, that was shaped or conditioned by fear. He was shaped and conditioned by His heavenly Father. It's not that He never felt fear. It's not that He didn't experience anxiety. It's not that His emotions never swung out to some extreme like yours and mine do. Jesus Christ Himself could not control His emotions. If you think otherwise, then you've got to discount His humanity, and you've got to toss out a faithful high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. He could not control His emotions, but His emotions never controlled him. Every thought, every feeling, every soul reaction to a fearful and crazy world became an escort into his heavenly Father. 
Oh, this hurts, but God, what do you say? Oh, this is terrible, but God, what do you say? He's sweating drops of blood, and he says, but not my will, but yours, God. Every emotional, mental, soulish reaction becomes an escort into his Father. Well, Paul starts in verse 15 with a warning. The warning is be careful how you walk in a fearful world, not unlike the guys this weekend walking through an imaginary minefield, because that's a great illustration of the world in which we walk. And Paul puts it in such a way that he says it's more important where it's how we walk is more important than where we walk. Listen, you and I can walk through the wilderness. We can walk through the jungle. We can walk through the desert. I take a group of men every year to a Rocky Mountain adventure, and we always sit them down and talk first about how you walk in the wilderness and what happens if you get lost and what happens if you get interested, if you get injured, because how you walk through the wilderness is more important than where you're walking. It's a life and death type of situation. Paul says this is why the how is so important in verse 16, because the days are evil. Now, most of us church people would describe evil in terms of certain behaviors that are inconsistent with the character of God, and that is not an inaccurate thing to do. It's not the main point here, because evil is not just about behavior. Carefully listen to this. Evil can look very good or it can look very, very bad. Evil is a theory of success based upon self-determination. I'll decide for myself what is right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's helpful, what's harmful. Case study number one in the Scriptures was an angel called Lucifer. One willed God's was operating in the universe, and Lucifer decided he wanted a cut on the trade of worship and directed it toward himself. He was going to decide what's good and bad for me, not God any longer. He introduced this theory of self-determination and self-definition into our world. And we see that he was tossed out. The devil did not fall out of heaven. He was thrown out because of his evil choice. What is case study number two? Adam in the book of Genesis. The serpent showed up and dropped a lie in front of Adam and Eve saying, essentially, you've got a right to yourself. If you want to be like God, here's how you do it. You start deciding for yourself what's right for you and what's wrong for you. Come on, nobody knows you like you. You know what tastes good. You know what doesn't. You know what feels good. You know what doesn't. He was constantly bringing that assault upon them. You've got a right to yourself. And what happened? They took that lie into themselves, and this fearless fellowship that they had with God died, didn't it? That's a lesson unto itself. But when we came to Zephaniah this weekend, the nation of Judah was doing the exact same thing. They were more sensual than spiritual. They were trying to live with one foot in God and another foot in the world. They ended up being self-serving religious people, and yet they were absolutely characterized by fear. In one description of them in a different book in the Bible, it says that when they were facing a marauding army, that their hearts shook like the leaves on a tree in the face of a strong wind. God was their God. God was their Father. 
But they had slipped into self-determination and self-definition and even self-deification. Live by that lie, I've got a right to myself. I can decide for myself what's good and bad for me. Idolize our own thoughts and feelings. And what happens? You and I are under the influence of evil. We're being led by a voice that's not God. Look at the results in verse 15, 16, and 17. We will walk as unwise, foolish, and disintegrating people. Paul took three everyday words in the language of his day, thoughtful, sensible, and problem-solving, and he joined them to a negative prefix. You'll end up being unthoughtful, insensible, and things will start dissolving around you. Look in verse 15. Make, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as, here's our first word, unwise. And I'm not going to parse these words to death. I think they're just so easily understandable. We'll just mention each one of them and move on. But what was he talking about here? Someone who really doesn't have actual knowledge of how a thing works. There are not many people on the planet who have an actual working knowledge of how God designed the planet to work. I'm not saying that with a condescending, condemning point of view. I hope, like you and me, it breaks our hearts. But the news should not be a surprise to us. The chaos should not be a surprise to us with so many unwise decisions being made. Think about even little children. Why are they so vulnerable to be taken advantage of by an evil world? Because they're not experienced. They don't know how things work. Let me ask you a simple question. How many wise decisions have you ever made under the influence of a lying voice? I think we got it. We can move on. Verse 17, don't be foolish. This is without discernment, without uh, being sensible. The word means literally you're not able to think things through to their full consequential end, right? Man, we don't have very many consequential thinkers. How much going on in our own lives is impulsive and, and irrational because we just make a quick choice in the moment. It's almost, uh, the word could be translated, morally stupid. Two words, drunk driving. Two words, road rage. Be ready, the next one's going to hurt. Two words, credit card. I don't think anybody in this room intended up being in so much debt, you're not sure you can climb out of the hole. But when we're listening to voices that are lying to us and deceiving us, we will make very foolish and unwise choices. Listen, how pleased have you been with the results of believing any voice who didn't have your best interest in mind? You listen to an advertiser. You listen to a con man. You listen to someone who is setting you up to manipulate you. How many of those choices are you proud of? Listen, the interventions are the sound that God's voice is making saying, enough's enough. Will you start listening to me? How about in verse 18? 
Don't get drunk with wine. That is dissipation or debauchery or degrading. It means running something into its excess and into its ruin. The word literally means to save or to solve with a negative prefix in front of it. It's going to be dissolving. It's going to be unsaving. Well, the choice you make in that kind of mood is not going to fix the problem. It's not going to heal the issue. Think relationships. What if you and I start picking up tactics and words and weapons to heal a relationship without any reference to God whatsoever? And the tactics or the weapons that we use cannot be integrated into the character of Christ. You can count on this. It will have a disintegrative effect on that relationship every single time. But fear will make us say some crazy things, won't it? Fear will drive us to use all kinds of weapons if we're afraid that we're going to lose. Well, listen, that's the warning. Here's the way in verse 18. But, but you can be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ's purity, the Spirit of Christ's humility, the fearless Spirit of wisdom and discernment and healing and victory. You and I can live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We just sang at Christmas time some of those songs and went back to those Isaiah passages about the Messiah and the, go- the, the government will be upon his shoulders. Remember that line from Isaiah? Have you yet put the government of your life upon his shoulders? When you and I will say, I will take the government of my life and I will put it upon your shoulders, now we are in the place where we can operate under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. God's not just a distant consultant from whom we get options and reject them when we don't like the option He gives us. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't feel like it's going to work. So we toss it by the wayside. What if we put the government of our lives upon His shoulders? Somebody want to try that right now? Mom, this is not just a lecture. I'm ready to put the government of my life upon your shoulders. I want to be under the influence of your loving spirit. And when Paul's talking about being filled with the Spirit of God, he's not talking about a substance that fills an empty receptacle. He's not talking about a power outlet that we plug our lives into. The living Spirit is the person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we're talking about one person living under the influence of another person. That's the spirit of the Father and the Son. And the way Paul says it is so liberating to me. He writes it in this passive kind of voice that says, you can't fill yourself. Somebody in the room just sighed to the glory of God. You will never, ever walk fearlessly in this world by trying hard not to sin, by trying hard to do good, by trying hard to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. That is human effort. We, these things become realities in our lives when we are willing to trust Him. Only you can fill me. This is a work of Almighty God. It's all by grace. There's no trying to it. It's all trusting. You didn't try to get saved, did you? You trusted someone to save you. The Scripture says in Colossians 2.6, well, then now you walk just like you received Jesus Christ. You want to walk filled with the Spirit? We trust for His life to be released through us. 
We're not trying hard to change ourselves or anybody else any longer. That's not how it works. He writes it in a continuous present tense. There's a moment-by-momentness to this. Every one of us in this room received the fullness of God's Spirit at our baptism. If we were 19, if we were 12, if we were 79, it didn't matter. We received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But now we are being taught by our indwelling guide to live in and to walk and to move and to have our being in the fullness of the one who lives inside of us. He writes it in a plural sense, so it's not just for a specially elite few, pastors, missionaries, leaders in the church. This is for every son and every daughter of God, and he puts the whole thing in an imperative mood. It's not up for a discussion. It's not a debate. It's a simple yes or no. Yes, in this crisis point of my life, I will be filled by your spirit. No, God, I think I know a better way. Over and over and over and over again. We kind of illustrated it differently through the weekend, but it could look something like this. Someone has offended you and hurt you terribly, and you're wondering if you're ever going to get over it. And that crisis turns you to the Spirit of God. What in the world am I supposed to do with this? And the Spirit of God says, I want you to take the forgiveness that my Son has given you, the fullness living in you, and freely give away what you've been freely given. And we're going, I don't know about that, God. In fact, I think forgiveness is too good for people like that. Well, one of us is lying. One of us is under the influence of someone who has our best interest in mind and would never tell us to do anything that will not be liberating and transformative into the person of Christ. The other has the exact opposite interest, and he wants to keep us bound to memories we say we want to be free of. And we have a simple choice in that moment. I will be filled by the spirit of forgiveness who lives in me. I don't have to feel it. I don't have to understand it. I don't even have to see it make a difference. I've heard my Father, and that's enough. And the fullness of God's Spirit finds His release in those moments. I'm ceding my way to your way. I'm canceling out my truth in the light of your truth. I am laying down my life so that your life can find its escape through me. Listen, being filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, does call for a willingness. And if this is new to us, there's one place we start. We receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, there are many, many verses that speak to this, but we can summarize it right here in this Pentecostal sermon that Peter preached. Peter said, repent, each of you be baptized, immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, because he is the forgiver, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a promise as sure as the gift of the forgiveness of your sins, as sure as your entry into heaven someday. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why is that so important? You can't be filled up on what you don't have. 
There's no way to be filled by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit of God for those hopeless, helpless, overpowering, fearful moments of life if the Spirit of God is not abiding in us. And you don't have to jump through any hoop. You don't need any extracurricular charismatic gift. You have said, I believe in you, Jesus Christ, and the promise is we receive the gift of His Spirit. We'll spend all of eternity figuring out what that means. But we start our baby steps by agreeing with what God says. I don't know what that's supposed to look like. I don't feel it when, man, somebody pushes one of my on-fire buttons. But you say, your spirit dwells in me. And we recognize that he lives within us in all of his fullness permanently. To receive the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is what Paul was referring to in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You have been made partakers with the divine. And I quote, everything pertaining to life and godliness is now yours in the Spirit of Christ. I'm not looking outside of me any longer for solutions. I'm not going to the culture to tell me to figure out how to make a relationship work. None of those things. Everything we need is grace to us in Christ who lives within us. Why is that so important to believe? Some, if, if a church wants to grow up, if a church wants to shine a fearless light in a fearful world, you've got to come to grips with something that is so liberating. You've got to bypass your brain, open your spirit up to God, hear Him say it, and just say, well, if you say so, this is it. He will never, the loving Father, the sacrificial son, the indwelling spirit will never ask anything out of you he's not already put within you. He will never ever ask you to forgive again and again and again and again unless there is a life in you that forgives again and again and again and again. He will never ask you to go the second mile with some undeserving so-and-so unless there's already a second mile life inside of you. He will never, ever ask you to pray and bless, pray for and bless an adversary unless there is an adversary, there is an adver, I can't even say the word, an enemy. How about that? Unless there's an enemy loving life in you. This is why it's so critical to learn to be filled with the Spirit because there is no filling of the Holy Spirit by trying hard to forgive, by trying hard to go the second mile, by trying hard to get along with difficult people. It is trusting the life of the Son of God in me to do what I can't do for myself just the way I got saved. It's no different. It's not complex. There are no formulas and methods. It is simply saying, If you say so, (laughs) it's not that hard. And then what do we realize? We realize he wants to fill and influence every aspect of our lives. We have an indwelling God, an indwelling teacher. Jesus said he's going to guide you into all things that are like me. He's going to teach you everything about me. Why is that so important in our fearless, senseless world today? It's always been important. In in the days in which it was written, but today we lose sight of it. In a world without fences, you better have an indwelling God. In a world where nothing any longer is taught on the basis of God's say-so, where self-definition and self-deification rule the day, a thing is whatever I say it is, 
you better have an indwelling teacher. Paul says the children of God can walk through this world fearlessly because they never go anywhere without an indwelling teacher. They never go anywhere without an indwelling guide. That's why he says you can renounce all the externals. He says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, and certainly that is about alcohol, but it's more of a metaphor. You don't want to get intoxicated or indulge in anything that's here today and gone tomorrow. You can get intoxicated with money. You can get drunk on your toys. You can overindulge on personal pleasure and approval and fashion and fitness and even religion. Some of you may have grown up with an alcoholic in your family, and some are kind of nice and sweet and indifferent and just don't pay any attention to you. Some of them are mean drunks. You get a religious person who is operating out of the Spirit of God, and they are mean drunks. They're judgmental. They're condemning. They're ridiculing. They can hear a sin drop a mile away, but they haven't heard God speak in 40 years. This is why we want to be filled with the Spirit of God instead of filling up on all that emptiness. Verse 20, he says, give God thanks. Always giving God thanks in all things. You want to walk in the Spirit of God? You want to stay with the Spirit of God? Respond with thanksgiving. Now, I know it's the always and the all that are the killers in that verse. In other words, it doesn't matter what it is. This is what keeps us tuned and turned into the things above. This is what activates our see-through capacity so that appearances no longer determine reality. This is what immerses us in the sovereign, loving, redeeming work of God that appearances don't tell the whole story. This is where you and I learn in a moment where we don't feel like it. We grit our teeth to the glory of God and say, thank you, Jesus. You know what we're doing? We are crowning you king of this moment. We love to come to church and sing, crown him, crown him, crown him. We love to sing contemporary songs about worshiping the king. It doesn't mean a whole lot if we won't step into the moment that we're in and crown him king of the moment. Thank you. I, I, I don't feel thankful for what I'm in. I don't see anything on the horizon of my life to give you thanks for but I know there is more to this world than what I see. My emotions don't validate it, but I know when I've listened to my emotion to be the Supreme Court and get the final verse, I've rarely been pleased with the results. I am going to take you at your word. I am going to give you thanks for this moment. Listen, don't expect to live fearlessly, filled with the Holy Spirit, if your only call to worship is a meeting like this on Sunday morning. Every crisis in your life and mine is the call to worship. Every piece of bad financial news, every overabundant gift that comes in so that we're not taken us captive by that either, right? It's not about bad things. It's about all things. Crowning Him Lord of every moment. And then verse 21 as we close, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You want to be filled with the Spirit of God on a consistent basis? Listen, it's not about behavior. It's not about trying hard not to sin. You can be filled with the Spirit of God and get caught up in something and do something that is a misrepresentation of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit, the teacher, the guide in you says, that wasn't Christ coming out of you. And you and I can say, yes, sir, you're absolutely right. Thank you for the forgiveness and keep right on walking filled with the Spirit of God. 
This is not about human performance. It is about His promise to express Himself through even imperfect vessels in the realm of time and space. He doesn't need somebody to pass for the angel Gabriel's trend before He will release His character through us. But here's the one you got to count on. Don't expect for the Spirit of God's life to flow through you and me if we're only doing it for ourselves. All God is looking for is someone who says, I'll be for others. Because the spirit of the life of the one in you and me is life for others. Don't think for a minute that being filled with the spirit will give you a more successful family, a successful church, a successful business. It may or may not. That is God's prerogative. What God is up to when we say, I'll be for others, is not making us successful. He's making us sacrificial. Ooh, that was quiet. This is where everybody wants to get off the peace train. Did he or did he not say he was going to make you like his son, Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ was not successful by any worldly standards, but he was sacrificial by every divine standard. We lay our lives down for the sake of others so the life in us can flow. So here we are, presenting ourselves to the Spirit of God, acknowledging Him through thanksgiving and worship at work in the all things of our lives, willing to be for others. And what's happening in the process? You don't always recognize it at first, but what we're doing is slowly but surely turning away from the reign of self-rule, which is a chronic, fearful posture, because we both know anything in this world can bring that to an end. One financial disaster, one medical diagnosis, one car accident. And I don't rule. He is slowly but surely turning us away from self-rule to the rule of Christ. The fearless one. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that in your goodness, you did not withhold any good thing. And we know this is how you are teaching us to make the most of our time in the midst of present tense circumstances. Thank you for the reminder this morning that it's all right to be afraid, but whenever we are afraid, we can trust in you. The fullness of your Spirit in us, the release of that fullness through us, so that you might receive honor and glory and the people around us might have a chance to taste and see that you are what you say you are, good. So we choose now to put the government of our lives upon your shoulders. We dare the practice of giving you thanks for all things. We present our bodies to you and all they contain as vessels who are willing to be for others. And we will trust what you have already told us. You will release the fullness of yourself in us and through us. And nothing Nothing in this world can stop that. In Christ's name, amen. Isn't that great? Thank you, Steve. I wish that uh, we had several hours to debrief what we just heard because there was a lot of meat inside of those words that were spoken in those 35 to 40 minutes.
But we don't have that time today because there are people standing outside that are waiting to get in. But if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, today might be that day. Steve spoke some pretty powerful words this morning. Steve, thank you. You are my friend. You are my mentor. Uh, you're an incredible man. Thank you. Um, we send you out this morning to go and live just as what you've heard as the sacrificial one to be his instrument of peace and love. God is not asking anything from you that he has not already placed within you. Did you hear that? Yes. What a privilege it is for us to be his representatives today. Man, if you're questioning your faith in Jesus Christ, we would love to be able to talk with you today. I'll be here this, this morning. Brian will be here this morning. But thank you for your presence. God bless us now as we leave this place. We are filled. We are filled now. I pray that there will be this overflow as we walk out into this world to be your instruments of peace and grace and mercy and love. In Jesus' name, amen.